I just would always, like, Gaga would tell me these stories when we'd be in the studio in the beginning, like, it's so nice that you listen, because you don't know, like, most of these fucking dudes out here, and these, these producers, and they're assholes, and I, and I would, I would believe her, but I was just more, like, befuddled, like, this is the fucking word, befuddled, Jesus. I was just more like, I was just more like, why, if you're in the room with someone who's incredibly talented and really good, why don't you just shut up and listen to them? Like, where does ego come in that you're, like, going to get in the way of making good art because you have to make this girl know that you're the boss? Mark Ronson is an Oscar and Grammy-winning producer who's behind some monster hits from Amy Winehouse's Rehab to Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars to Shallow by Lady Gaga to Nothing Breaks Like a Heart with Miley Cyrus. I've known Mark since the 90s when he was an awesome New York club DJ and I was out in three clubs a night all up in the scene. Mark was my favorite DJ so I'd always go hear his sets and over time we became friends. He DJed my wedding, my wife and I went to his wedding, so you know, he's the homie. He's got a brilliant musical mind, so when we met at Electric Lady Studios in Manhattan, a place made famous by Jimi Hendrix, I wanted to talk to him about music. So we're diving deep into his hits and his studio process and how you make a song. It's Mark Ronson on Touré Show. So... How do you make a song? Um, it's it's a pretty that is a fairly broad question, but I would like to honor it. So basically, when I I can only speak how I would maybe make a song, and I could probably pick a couple songs because it can be such a varied experience. It's like my first song I ever had that kind of I guess maybe put me on the map a little bit was the song Uwe with Ghostface and Nate Dogg from my first record. Yes. So for that. I was watching the movie Boogie Nights, and there's a scene when there's like Mark Wahlberg's the busboy in the beginning. I heard this string sample in the background, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." And this was before Shazam by 20 years, and uh, <laughs> I think I waited. Uh, I went and bought the soundtrack. There were two soundtracks of Boogie Nights, so it actually wasn't on the first. So then I like go back and I watch the whole movie. I think I had it on Laserdisc. Waited, wrote all the songs down in the credits, and by process of elimination, found out it was a song called "Sunny" by Boney M. Found the strings. Love that song. Yeah, it's finally hooked up like a drum beat that I like. Probably tried a lot of different drum beats and like break beats until I found the one that felt exactly right underneath the string sample and gave it like the feel that I wanted. Um, knew that I wanted Ghostface Killer because I loved Wu Tang at the time and he had done a lot of like like Cherche Le Ghost. He was always like good over disco y type records. Yeah. Like they never sounded soft, they were like a little tongue in cheek. And I remember him calling me. I never spoke to him on the phone. They're like, Ghost is going to call you to talk about direction for the song. I'm like a giddy kid, like on like a first date, like butterflies in the stomach. He's going to call me like, you know, I'm terrified of saying something like dorky or neurotic or weird that he's just going to like, be like, no, I'm not going to do the song or something. <laughs> but he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I get it. Like on some, I'm like, yeah, it's like a disco vibe, but I love when you do the disco stuff and like the song he did on Ghost Dog, Standing in the Darkness. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's like that, that Tony Monero shit. And I even had to like think because his cultural references are so amazing and all his songs and stuff. He's like, a, you could just tell he's like a sponge. And I was like, oh, that's the character from Saturday Night Fever, Tony Monero. So he was like, he was, so anyway, finally get that on. I had a very hard time coming up with a hook for it. Anything, anytime we tried to put a chorus on it, it sounded quite cheesy and because the strings were already quite happy. So at the last 11th hour, Sylvia Rohn, who's the head of my label, says, 
we can get Nate Dog to do the hook for you. I'm like, that's amazing. So Nate Dog, like I literally have to get the song to mastering to hand in to be finished. Like on the Wednesday, Nate Dog sends me these files, says he's recording the hook, gets to me Saturday. I put the CD drive, it's like old school computer, like CD-ROMs and like load it up. And unfortunately, there's nothing in the session. It's just all these blank waveforms, which means like something was a mistake. When they saved, it was a mistake, whatever. It's a nerdy thing. So I have to call Nate Dog on like Saturday morning at his home, who I've also never spoken to really before, <laughs> and definitely probably like bother him, like, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, uh, this, yeah, this is my, no, thank you so much for doing the hook. Do, do I think it's good? I actually don't, I'm sure it's amazing, <laughs> but I can't tell you yet because then he's like, no, 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 because I know. And like, because a lot of artists who like sit at home recording themselves to take pride in the fact, like, I'm not just some idiot, which is the engineer who then like, it's that they have to send it. Nate Dog, I could tell, like, was used to recording his own stuff. And he was like, no, man, I remember because I dragged the file all of the same directory, like something like that. Like, it should be there. And I was like, and I know what he did wrong. And I don't want to be condescending. I'm like, do you want to just check on the drive? He goes, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, so we're talking. He's like, oh, he's like, he's definitely frustrated. Like, he knows that, like, I'm within my rights and he wants to help out. But he's like, and he's just like, man, phew. I was like, I'm so sorry about this. He's like, I'm just trying to make it to the fight, man. And I was like, that <laughs> sounded so profound and beautiful. He's like, I'll get those files to you, send it. So whatever, I'm excited. I'm going to get my hook from Nate Dog on Monday. And later that night, I guess we we're all, there was some giant like Las Vegas boxing match on that night. And we're all watching on TV and they're like, oh shit, that's Nate Dog in the front row. So he literally was like, I'm just trying to make it to the fight. Like I can't stay on the phone with you forever. <laughs> the I literal to, fight. Yeah, I have to get to Vegas. Anyway, so he sent the hook, and uh, this story is about eight times the length of the song. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, he, so I listened to the, the hook, and it was actually very busy. It had all this, like, when this happened, da, 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 that was his chorus. And coming out of Ghostface, like, very rappy verse to go straight into this, when I step into the body, and I was like, it's too, what am I going to And at the very beginning of the song, there was this little ad lib where he went, like, ooh-wee, ooh-wee, and I was like, that feels more suitable for a chorus. I'll take that part. It's just all these things are slightly subjective anyway, but that felt more like a chorus. And I was like, put that in and then saved what was originally his chorus for our like verse. I mean, the, his little bridge. And that's a very, um, that's one way. And that's probably how I started making music with a lot of sampling and break beats. Then when I really was kind of working in that, thing all the way through to when I met the Dap Kings, which is when we worked on Back to Black with Amy Winehouse together. And because her songs, so that was a song where Back to Black is the first thing that we wrote together where, um, and you've been in that studio. Incredible the one record. On, the, that was, the, the, you've been in that studio on Mercer Street. So like she yeah. came upstairs and she was like, I was like asked a very basic question that just seems to be always a good ground zero. like what kind of record do you want to make? Because yeah, I didn't really know. I wasn't a super experienced producer. Nobody's coming to me for a specific sound. She's like, well, I like a lot of this, like they play in my local, mm -hmm. which means like the pub, play a lot of this like Shangri-Las and she played me it. And I was like, cool. Like, So that was her direction. That was her direction. She, and like, she played me like, remember Walking in the Sand and a couple of these songs that funnily enough, I only knew from like, a Scorsese film where they put someone in the trunk of a car and like beat them with a baseball bat because that's yeah. where all that music existed in pop culture until that. Yeah. It wasn't Motown. It wasn't like the soulful stuff or maybe that I might DJ. And then, um, so she so she told me she liked this music. And I was like, well, I don't have anything 
like that to play you now because this would have been the era where I would have had like a beat tape or some tracks if someone came to my studio. I'd be like, do you like this one? I'm going through them. And I was like, I have nothing to play you like that, but come back tomorrow. Let me just stay up tonight and like fuck around with some stuff. I was inspired and I really liked her immediately. And uh, she, she, so I came up with like the piano chords for Back to Black and because she liked this Phil Spector thing, I just really easily put like this little boom like with a lot of reverb because it was just like a really cheap way to make it sound kind of like instantly authentic or something because I didn't know about like recording old school analog at that time and she came back the next day and she really liked it right off the bat and then she wrote the the words in like in basically an hour and so that's like and then when I met the Dap Kings when they recorded that I suddenly got a little bit out of sampling world and started to find musicians that could play things in a cool way that I thought was cool because I only ever sampled because going to a studio to record new drum sounds just sounded fucking shitty I mean no offense it would be like either like like bad rock metal like no one knew how to sound like record those drums and make it sound like Motown or the drum breaks and the Dap Kings kind of like brought that era in and now I mean obviously there's Adrian Young and other people now that that do it but um yeah that was it I just always wanted it to sound Dusty. You talked about with Amy, you know, you didn't want her to do too many takes because she's so talented that she'd give you five or ten great takes and then you're overwhelmed. Yes. Yeah, you did. She was such she was such a she was a pure singer, you know, so she would once she had the song, she would just sing it four times straight down. And and she'd like she, you One, know, do, the whole song the all whole the way song, through all the way through. And uh and each time, because she kind of more came from a jazz school of singing, each time was different and had like little riffs or improvisational things on the melody that would make it different. And after like three or four of those, they're all perfect takes. If she had stopped after one, like no one would have, rehab wouldn't have been any lesser of a song. But And then what you do is you go through it together and you pick your favorite parts of the vocal take. But then by doing that, each one's melodically different. So like if we had made a couple different choices on that day, the, the melody of Rehab or Wake Up Alone or these songs that people kind of know by heart now when they sing it would be, would be a different song. Rehab functions on a bunch of different levels. It's funny, it's soulful, you could play it at a party, you could you know analyze it academically, intellectually, whatever. Talk about making that record. Um, okay, so that was, we were, we had worked on Back to Black, we had a bit of a rhythm going, and uh, sh we were walking down the street, because my old studio was on Mercer, uh, and she wanted to go to the Ben Sherman store to like buy a shirt <laughs> for her boyfriend Alex at the time, and I remember I think I had to lend her 30 bucks to like get it, and she was, we were just opening up, she was telling me a lot about her past, and she was like, because she was very together when we met, she was like working out every day, like I don't think she drank like we she was just like had obviously come out of this fairly dark time and she was like yeah man a year ago two years ago I was a mess and you know my manager came over and my dad and all those people and they they tried to make me go to rehab and I was like no 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 and she like did the talk to the hand gesture and and it just was instantly so hooky and quirky and charming and I was like oh, I she I, just said the song to you in conversation she just said in conversation we were walking down Spring Street and I was just like I hate to make shit out of like gimmicky hooks at the time because like at that moment it was like the peak of like the pussycat dolls like won't you feel my beep like whatever like I yeah. just hate like using a a, a quirky gimmick and I but I was like but that was very funny the way that you said that and maybe we should and there was something hooky and syncopated in the way you said no 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 like let's go do you want to go fuck around in the studio and try and make a song 
So it started off and it, it had like a very slow, like 12 bar blues, like they tried to make me go to rehab. And I was like, well, what about all this, like my boyfriend's back shit? Because yeah. you've been playing me. Because obviously the, I'm, the DJ in my head is always going like, can we bring up the tempo? Can we make it more snappy? When, it, when it's called for in the Because you like to make people dance. I like to make people dance. And so we came up with like the little V, like boom, whatever. And she kind of like, she dug it and then we took it a little further and if you think about like the beat in the verses it's actually quite like a it's not something that was being used in contemporary r&b and soul and pop at that moment because it was almost like the strokes were like the only it was like indie bands were the only people sorry indie bands were the only people playing like that and i remember her walking in the, the English version of the Strokes was this band called The Libertines. She walked in while mm. I was playing the drum, like the demo beat to like get the thing together. And she goes, are you trying to make me sound like the bloody Libertines or something? <laughs> and I was like, uh, and I kind of looked a little embarrassed when she's like, no, I'm just fucking with you. I love it. But she would do that. Like she would, I mean, she had an incredible acerbic, very cutting, usually quite friendly. I mean, she could cut you down like if she wanted to, but she, she, we didn't have that kind of relationship. But I loved her, her brain and her wit was like something that I very much enjoy being around. I mean, that song was a monster. I mean, like you walked around that summer, it was everywhere coming out of cars and stores. And I mean, just, I want to keep talking about making music, but just experiencing your music in the world. Like, was that like, what was that like for you? Like suddenly the song is, it's hard to, you know, I mean, it's hard to communicate to people how big that record was that summer. It was it was very, you know, I'd worked on things before and things that had always been like a little buzzy or like the heads would know. I remember the Nika Costa, like a feather song, like people would just mm. kind of like more in the know would kind of know. But this was like my first ever experience with something that was just like hit the mainstream. And it's really exciting when it hits the mainstream and it sounds different to everything else because then it really stands out and people go like, who the fuck? It's not like you're making a hit for Justin Bieber maybe where you're like, you know. It's you, actually, you sorry, sorry is kind of a banger. I don't want to you you kind of turned the culture in a way of like, look at this and like, oh. It, it, it became this thing. And I remember the first thing I really felt it was uh, Jazzy Jeff called me. And it was like, I'd always really looked up to him and we'd DJed together, like different stuff. And he called me when the record must have just come out. It might have even come out. It was like back in the day when shit would come out in like England three months before. Like, it's so crazy now how globalized music is to think that that ever happened. He was like, yo, man. He's like, we all just heard this Amy Winehouse record that you did, and like, I'm telling you, like, we're all fucked up over here. Like, yeah. Quest Love, like, digital. And I was like, oh, these are like my peers, and they're telling me that I've done something. Like, not that it's good, but that's like that's touched them and something. And then I, then I started to feel like a little bit of the ripple. And then when it, you were there at her first yep. show, uh, Joe's Pub, it was like Nas. Jay-Z, Yassine, like it was like an anointing almost, like it was, yeah, it was almost too much that early, and she wasn't, she wasn't like always, in the live venue wasn't like her thing to always bring it down, because she wasn't erratic, but she was like a jazz singer, so she wouldn't always do it the way you wanted to hear it, and it, you know, it was her first ever show, and like all of a sudden, like it's literally like, and the first ones in LA, I remember it was like, Courtney Love and anybody you could imagine just like she, everyone had just decided that she was the second coming because the music was that good but the live thing was like always a little different. There's two eras for me with that record. It comes out, it's huge and it's funny. 
right? And it's thumbing its nose at rehab culture and this notion of we should all get clean because, you know, at that point, every month some celebrity was going to rehab. And then it wasn't funny anymore when it, when she wasn't doing well, of course. Yeah, like a year or two later when it became clear. No, no, she has a very serious current problem. Yeah. It was like, oh, this record is tragic. And she's like in trouble and laughing at her trouble the way an addict would do. So how does that function for you? I mean, first, did you know how bad she was when you were making the record? And when did you start to know like... Shit. Well, she wasn't bad at all when we were making the record. I never would have said that was like a funny thing to make. Like in the hindsight, and once I actually even actually saw the documentary and got even more insight to that period of her life when I wasn't so around, I started to have like, not guilt, because they did what was felt right at the time, but like, oh shit, like this is the song. And then I can't really listen to that song. I do feel like it's funny, like the other song we did together for my record, Valerie, like which didn't even chart when it record. came out, has really had this like life after like her passing because it's like this one and because it's a cover, it's this one joyous song that you can really just celebrate and enjoy her music without having to remember too much of like the trauma that also made the music so great. But rehab is definitely one that I don't like it. It and I don't think you hear it too much on the radio either because it is painful. It's like oh shit, we were all like laughing and singing along with this song and like fuck, like you know, I don't. Nobody's thinking like life would have been different if she went to rehab. But it's just not. It's like a joke that's not funny anymore. Yeah, yeah. It it got really hard to listen to it when it was like oh she's really struggling. Mm -hmm. Um. So uptown funk takes you again to a massive mainstream place. Um, talk about making that record, because it's a totally different vibe. Yeah. That record, you know, I was, one of the things that usually happens with my own solo records, it's like, okay, whoever I've just been working on their album, it's like, hey, you want to get together? And I'd had a really great time working with Bruno on his unorthodox jukebox record. We had worked on a few songs on that. And I was just like, hey, I'm in the middle of making my record. Do you want to do some jams? And we have become close. He was like, I want my buddy Mark to win. Like, so I went over to Bruno's house. I mean, sorry, his studio, his old studio in, in uh, West Ho in like Hollywood. Um, and uh, we just had like a jam session one night. There was this other thing that I really wanted us to work on this song called like Magic or something. It had these chords and we did, like we just kept hitting a wall. So we're like, let's just fuck around and do something from scratch. So Bruno gets on the drums. He's a good drummer and it's like fun. And Jeff Basker is like a fucking could have been in like the revolution like on the <laughs> juno playing this awesome shit i'm playing bass and it's just this goofy jam it's like we can tell it's fun because we're playing the same fucking four bar thing over and over for, for four hours but we're like we don't know what this is but it certainly feels good so bruno had been doing this thing in his live show where he was doing uh all gold everything by trinidad james you know um over like this double time, kind of like James Brown, like kind of, uh, you know, get up off of that thing type beat. So we're like, let's take that cadence because it's a cool cadence for the verses and kind of change it around. So it's like this hit, that ice cold. And then Jeff, because he works with Kanye so much on 808s and Dark Twisted has that mind. Like he's always looking for like the cold, like Kanye lines. Like and when, when he said Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold, yeah, that was like a Kanye line. And we we're like, well, yeah. this is actually now just not just like fun. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And and we wrote the first verse that night all the way through. We didn't have anything else, just like I'm a band about that money. Um, mm -hmm. And then, uh, and it was so much fun. It was like every now and then when you have an idea that's like that exciting, you, you only have a minute of it and you listen to it like 
on repeat 15 times on the drive home, whatever it is. And then a lot of the times that we got back in the studio to try and finish the song, it felt forced. And we never quite got that like joy of like that first thing. And it felt labored. And it took seven months and like yeah. Memphis, Toronto, all these different places. I was following Bruno around on tour just to get in anywhere um, to really get it. So the rest of the song felt as effortless and as fun and captured the spirit of what it, what we felt like on that first evening when we came out with it. And then there were a whole lot of other things like Bruno, when he put in the, like those claps to make it something a little more like modern and aggressive. Cause it sounded a little organic and like groovy before that. And then Phil came up with the, do, 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 you know, like yeah. a bass line that we were going to play on a bass. We we're like, no, it actually just sounds good with Phil singing it. Like, so there were all these like little layers and, We'd go to Memphis for two days, invite like whoever down to come. I mean, can't even imagine who came in. The DJ Quick, Mystical, all the people like kind of came in during their thing. That sound like who's gonna help us crack this code? And there was nobody. We just had to do it ourselves. But like you know, Memphis for three days. Maybe all we got was like two lines for the second verse, and then the uptown funk you up part. But like, and that's and every time. Everyone be kind of frustrated at the end of the session. I remember Bruno just being like, man, I guess like sometimes it breaks my heart, but I guess maybe the song was never meant to be. Wow. And because it was supposed to be on my album, of course, I had more vested in it. So <laughs> right. I, I would wait a couple of weeks. So everybody's like tempers just like settled a bit, cooler heads and be like, hey, you guys want to get back together and like work on that song? And it's good, right? And everybody like, all right, one last time. Like the Blues Brothers, like getting the band back together. <laughs> and then we kind of just got it. We finished it. I remember going to Toronto because he had a show at the Air Canada Centre. We are in Cherry Beach Studios. And it was just like the time that sort of everything finally came together. That song's part of the greatness of that song is there's, there's a lot of dynamics and tension build up and release and different parts to the song, the breakdown. I mean, talk about that sort of architecture of a song how you you build up tension and then you release and then you build it up again and well jeff basker who who was an incredible songwriter and you know uh he wrote try sleeping with a broken heart party for beyonce a lot of 808s all the synths on there all of the lights but like he just has such a musical brain and he's just so clever and they're Having the musical brain and the technical ability doesn't mean anything if you don't if you're not an inspired individual. But because he is a Berkeley musician, he can. There's no lag time between when he thinks something and when he can play it. I'm thinking of something and I'm like stumbling around till I can like get it on the piano. Even you still, know? yeah, because I like you know your chord, your voicings get a little more complicated as you get older. Whatever it is, like I'm still always learning and teaching myself, but. He just knew right away, like, oh, I was like, what do we do for the pre that'll make it cool? And he's like, we'll just go chromatically, and did it in this clever way that got right back to the root, which is the D or whatever key we're in. And then so there's all these moments and then like little moments that came all the way at the very end. Like Bruno has one, like his favorite drum fill, I think, or at the time was this fill that was like, like he was playing it. So like, but without anything to back it up, just having that fill in the middle of the end of the song, just it felt like sloppy. So we're like, all right, well, let's write a riff that goes on. It's like, and there was suddenly another little moment that we got at the end. It was like almost my favorite part of the song. And then we tried so many different beats. There was like percussion at one point in that breakdown. We were just like, no, no, we need to like just have nothing in that, you know, before we leave. 
And then the Uptown Funk You Up, Uptown Funk You Up bit was just like a kind of throwaway thing that just like reminded me of like some old P-Funk shit. And yeah. The horns are so great and important and like grabby on that. Yeah. So that was the last thing. So I kind of like after version and back to black and really like overdoing the horns a lot, I'd realized I'd come to make that a little bit of a crutch. But there was more horns in like a 60s Motown way. The horns at Uptown Funk are much more like polished and... So Bruno, I'd left Toronto, actually. We finally thought we had the song done. He's like, you're going to kill me, but I kind of put a horn line on it that I think I like because one of his bandmates played the horn. I listened, I was like, it's pretty cool. Let's try it. So I went to Brooklyn on the way back from wherever I was to go record the horns with the Dap Kings. Like one last thing, like get the horn section, get like the really tight section five piece and record this line. It was like the last icing on the cake and it's like, it's hard to imagine the song being as exciting without it. I mean, it wouldn't be. So, yeah, all those these little things. And when you have, like, Jeff, Phil, myself, Bruno, like, you're going to probably be lucky to have, like, a bit of a wealth of ideas because any of us would be fairly decent producing a record by ourselves. Like, not ever guaranteeing hits, but, like, we're all capable of producing a record by ourselves. So you do... That was the joy and why that song is probably as satisfying as it is because there's a glut of ideas because like everybody was just in the room firing and it was like a over long enough period of time that like you kept being able to put more ideas in the pot and really like cull what the good ones were i mean the casting of that song is really great and important because bruno can play that like i'm the shit sort of vibe but we know like He's not really like egoed out like a lot of rappers are. Right. So when he's playing that like I'm the man, we kind of get like the wink of it all. Like he's he thinks he's the man, but he's kind of humble too, so he can play that role in a winning sort of way. I don't know if if I can agree with your hypothesis there. What do you mean? Uh I think Bruno like knows he's the shit and I think he loves getting the shit talk because like that's part of him and it's like okay everybody thinks that I'm like this you know the guy who's like supposed to do like the the wedding song or or whatever it is but it's like I like recognize my talent. I'm fucking the best dancer the best live performer all this shit and you guys don't give me enough props and I'm going to do the one song where I get to shit talk. And yes, he has a very clever way, and Phil always has those lines like "Make a dragon want to retire." You know, she was more like a, uh, she was more like an Xbox. I'm an Atari, like those kind of off, <laughs> offsetting lines. But like Bruno knows how fucking good he is, and I think it's it's like a, when occasionally he gets to just like flex and like shit talk a little. It's like that's it. Like he's not an arrogant asshole, but right. like he knows he's he knows he's fucking good, and it's like I think that I mean I totally agree with that. I don't get arrogance from him. I get total self-assurance yeah. and total self-confidence. But like, you know, if you put, you know, let's say, let's say you put Ghostface on that. I'm like, his ego's out the right. wazoo in it and the whole record feels different. It, yeah, it does. Or persona, because ego yeah. is so different because ego is like, you know, when I think of ghosts, like one of the lines that always like sets in my mind is like, why she leave me? I don't know. Same dude, bigger dick. Like he's obviously like we all have our. The greatest artists are the ones with the most fucking wounded soul. You know, the persona is big and the the ego is usually pretty bruised and damaged. And it can come out in other ways, of course, because like, you know, you see a 
famous movie star or musician flexing nightclubbing, that's the first thing you go. You go, man, that guy's fucking ego, right? So I guess there's like this thing of ego, whatever. Without naming names, do folks tend to come in the studio like with that ego and that persona that we see out there? Or is it like, you know, you talk about they're kind of broken or humbled or whatever. Like they come in as their real selves and then put it on the record I, I think it's a little bit of both I, I always like go meet with somebody or at least have a coffee or like dinner or sit with them before we even work because you just want to get a sense of like can I play nice with this person mm. and also so there are people who you may have gone to dinner with and said like I don't know if this is a good fit I could yeah you could be like I don't think this this might not work I've been kind of lucky that most of the people actually I don't that's that's happened pretty rarely okay. but um yeah, so then there's that's the little icebreaker. Then they come in the studio, and you know everybody has a the studio is a sensitive, fragile place because as soon as you put forward an idea and you're writing a song, you're saying this is an extension of me or my feelings, and yeah. then you have to be like, if you don't like it, whatever. Like, I I think that I try and encourage like the most vulnerable, and maybe that's as you get like a little bit older, you're seeking more truth and honesty in music. I never used to be like in the studio like. Q-tip can like be more authentic self. Like <laughs> I think that like obviously like you get older and the things that become important to you, or maybe because I just matured late. Like this record that I have out right now, my own late night feelings is like literally the first time I've ever put my own feelings and emotions because it is a bit of a breakup record and whatnot. So there was no choice. I didn't mean to make a breakup record, but every time I sat down at the piano or work with people, something melancholy would come out, and after a while, I was like, I better just chase this because this is what's coming out right now. But I, I do kind of encourage this sense, you know, you're working with Lady Gaga or Miley Cyrus or these people that like, you know, they have a lot of stories and a lot of emotions and things to tell. And you know that the more you can get out of that on the song, the more powerful, the more relatable, the more it's going to hit people. And not every song has to be some torch song belter. It's, a, it's cool to like have fun shit too. But I guess I'm just in that thing. I'm like, oh, damn, am I like Rick Rubin now? I'm just going to be making like, like kind of like more grown up adult <laughs> music but like that's, that's okay thing. too we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to doordash if you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick let doordash bring dinner tonight my family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. 
Each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I want to get to these these more recent records that have blown a lot of people away. But before we get to that, why is it that so much of your success has come with working with women? Uh, you know, you mentioned Miley and Gaga, but also Adele, also uh, uh, going back to Lily Allen. Going back to Amy, you know, I mean, why is that? I, I don't, I think that maybe, like, especially in the pop world, uh, female artists are, like, express vulnerability in a more honest way. I mean, obviously, in rap, it's a bit different because Kanye opened the floodgates with 808s and then Drake, and it's very confessional now, hip-hop. But maybe in, like, pop and, and soul music, but I don't really know. Like, I just have a bond and a connection. I mean, I had, like, you know my mother? She's, like, she's definitely a dominating force in my life and a wonderfully complex and strong woman. And maybe, yeah, maybe that's why I'm comfortable around because all these artists, obviously, that you mentioned are larger than life and extremely powerful. And I just would always, like, Gaga would tell me these stories when we'd be in the studio in the beginning, like, it's so nice that you listen, because you don't know, like, most of these fucking dudes out here and these, these producers and they're assholes, and I and I would, I would I believed her, but I was just more, like, befuddled, like, who uses the fucking word befuddled, Jesus? I was just more, like, <laughs> I was just more, like, uh, um, why, if you're in the room with someone who's incredibly talented and really good, why don't you just shut up and listen to them? Like, where does ego come in that you're, like, going to get in the way of making good art because you have to make this girl know that you're the boss? I, I don't know. I mean, the studio is a very masculine space. Um, I've heard multiple female artists say, talking about men mansplaining stuff to them. And, I'm like, and they're like, 
you know, this is my session, right? Yeah. And yeah. you're telling me, like, yeah. you know, which is the typical bullshit that a lot of guys have. I know? guess so. I just, like, I'm, it's not even that I'm so fucking woke. I just, like, I want to get the best song. Like, I'm not, like, I really, I'm not, I'm now overplaying. It's not like I don't care about some of these feelings. But, like, I am essentially in the studio to make the best piece of music I can with you. To So you, like, are walking out of here with something really wonderful. And I feel like the way to do that is to just know when to get out of the way, know when to listen. And my ego has no place in the studio. It's not going to make anything better. Sure, if I have an idea I really believe in and I really believe it's going to make the the song better, I'm going to fight for it because I believe sure. that at some point on my records, I'll fight for a little more because it's my name on the front. And if it's your record, you're the one that's got to go out and sing the song for the next two years. So eventually you have the, you know, the, the veto power. But yeah. But I don't think you're imposing yourself because there isn't a ronson style right i i I wouldn't necessarily we shouldn't necessarily know that's a ronson record the same way a lot of producers we would know with a blind taste test right yeah i think that what happened was in the beginning in the beginning you're finding your sound and i was kind of copying all these different people i remember the first nika costa song the song like a feather i was such enthralled to dj premiere at that time and Mm. i thought i'd done a total knockoff of of a primo beat obviously i got it wrong i was i'm not dj premiere and we put our own little things on it but i remember dj premiere coming into the booth when i played it for the first time it was you were probably there the voodoo release party at Mm -hmm. central fly oh hell yeah and and I was playing like a feather. It hadn't come out yet. It was in maybe in this Hill Figure ad. And Premier comes in the booth. I'd never met him. And he goes, "I'm playing like a feather." And he's like, "What? What is this right here?" And I'm like, "Sure." I'm like stuttering. I'm like, "Oh, it's uh, the, it's the song Nika Costa." He goes, "Who who did this beat?" And I'm mm. thinking like, if I say me, is he gonna be like, who's <laughs> ripping off my whole entire shit? <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh I'm Mr. Premier, sir. Like, yeah, I. <laughs> I, I, I did. He goes, this shit is hard. And for three <laughs> minutes was doing the head nod. And it was honestly, I'm not joking, the highlight of my professional career up to that point. So anyway, when you're in the beginning, you're you're fumbling along, you're finding your way, you're emulating your heroes. And then you kind of figure it out, maybe by process of elimination, or maybe you have like a eureka moment. And uh, with Amy, because that was my first thing that was really successful, I did over milk that sound because I was probably like, oh my God, finally after 12 years of banging my head against the wall, this is what I'm successful with. So this must be all I should do from now. And then you kind of rinse it to the point where people are bored, you're uninspired. And I just took me a while to figure out the thing. And, And I guess now I'm just trying to make things that feel kind of classic, that feel timeless, I'm sure. But really the only MO is at the end of the day to like, make the best thing in the room on that day and whatever the song calls for. So because I do like a lot of different kinds of music, if Lady Gaga starts writing shallow and what, you know, that that my brain goes to, okay, what's the best arrangement for this song or what's the best, like, guitar accompaniment or whatever it is. And um, I didn't even produce that song. Like, you know, we just did the demo. She produced it. But And then, you know, Uptown Funk or Miley, like, it's just like, it's just a... It's an instinct, and like I said, it's subjective because it's just my taste. Where I'm like, this feels like the best thing for this song, and and that could be kind of anything. And I, I, sorry, no, no, I like the fact that it uh, my thing is a little less one dimensional than maybe how I came in because it's like I don't know what my next record will sound like, which is something that's like kind of exciting. You're like, oh, I don't know, it might necessarily be better or worse, but like I just don't know what it's going to sound like. Well, let's talk about the Gaga record. This is one of the big 
big moments in your career. I mean, and just for me, I mean, you know, I know you a long time. You were my favorite club DJ when I was going out to clubs three, four, five nights a week in the 90s. It's like, Mark is doing whatever, two eyes, like, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll definitely be there. Yeah. Um, and to see you on the fucking Oscar stage. Yeah next to gaga and fucking bradley cooper and you're like she's the captain and i'm like we're freaking out my wife yeah. and i'm freaking like oh my god he fucking did it but take us back to the beginning of that journey how that 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 journey with gaga started um so i was working with her on her album joanne and we kind of hit a nice rhythm on that and then she started talking to bradley cooper he was remaking star is born and he'd come to the studio a little bit and check us out and you know, he like walks in like, of course, like he's just looks like a bronze golden <laughs> god. Like he has so much charisma. And, like he's there's something about Bradley Cooper that I really like him. I think why a lot of guys enjoy his work because it's he's obviously handsome and ridiculously enigmatic, but without vanity. You don't ever get the sense. And, you know, you always say that like he's a guy I have a beer with or whatever. And then his movies like even if the subject matters like something a little silly or like limitless, it's like, OK, we all know what it's like to like. Well, I certainly know it's like to take an Adderall and like stay up all night studying thing. You can do that. But he's just done it and showed it in a way that's like way more entertaining. And then the hangover, all the things he's doing, silver linings, like I just really dig his work. So it was cool when he came in and uh, she was like, I'm going to I want to write some songs for this film. And I was kind of like, well, I'm kind of here for Joanne. I got Interscope breathing down my neck to make an October release. But I see this is important for you. Let's do a couple songs. Take a little detour. So we worked on, she came in with this idea. And what she does in the studio, like how we're sitting here with the headphones on, you know, I think that people sometimes have it in their mind that people sit around with an acoustic guitar, or like sit at the piano and everyone's like kind of sitting around. And she likes to everyone to put the headphones on and she's on a mic. So it's not just like she's singing in the room. She's singing in your head and your voice and it has reverb and nuance. And because her voice can do so many different character turns that it really does influence like where the song goes. So when she sang, like, Tell Me Something, Girl, like, the first time, and I heard it in my thing, and I was going through a kind of fucked up time, I think, in life, too. It just, it felt like a warm hug from the cosmos. Like, there's a lot of melancholy and, like, stuff in the song, but there's also, like, a lot of empathy and kindness, and it's kind of this mix of all those things, that song, like, pain, triumph. Um, and she sang that, and, you know, her hair's kind of stood up, and, it's a bit. It was a bit like Uptown Funk in the way that you're like, this is certainly more exciting to me than whatever we were doing three hours ago or yesterday. You're like, I don't know what this is, but it feels good. And then she came up with the, maybe the chorus first and then the two verses. And uh, at the end of the song, even though we were writing something for this film, I kind of missed the gaga. Like it was a little straight. I was like, you know that shit you do, like the bad, bad romance, rah, rah, ooh, rah, rah. I was like, do do something fun like that with this word shallow at the end. And she was like, so then we came up with this in the shaha, shalalo, in the shala, shalalalo, um, which sounds like a Jimmy Fallon doing Adam Sandler, like when I say <laughs> it. It does. In the shaha, shahalala. So, um, and that was kind of like the last thing. And then she went away and wrote a whole bunch of other songs for the movie, filmed the movie. I didn't even know she, I knew she was working. Like I was impressed with the fucking top line like nashville people she was she was like oh wow she's really going for it and i saw the first hour assemblage of the film like they all that was there was like edited up to the first hour um and 
I couldn't believe it when I saw they put our song into the like the plot and the narrative when she's sitting in the parking lot and she looks at him and like oh, I still get chills actually when I retell the story because I still feel it. I was like, because the first hour of the movie is so beautiful. It's like this wonderful love story that I was already falling in love with. And I was like, oh, fuck. And now our thing is in it. And then obviously when she gets discovered and she sings that song for the first time and I was like, oh, like this might be the song. There were a lot of other good songs in the movie too. So I wasn't getting my hopes up. But then the trailer came out and it was like really one of the most exciting trailers. I think it became like a whole cultural meme point. I was like, yeah. with our fucking song in it. Like this is insane. And then obviously the momentum just still like carried over and to, you know, when you saw me on that stage. It's a really powerful song. Yeah, I I st- I'd, I'd hear it like you know you you hear the song so much you become a little bit removed from them, and then every now and then you'll just like zone out and maybe just be in the car and it comes on and when her vocal hits a certain point I'll be like oh that's I know why this is meaningful to people because it also moves me when I take like my actual involvement out of the picture and it is I don't know what this is about that I mean we were all going through kind of some quite like heavy shit in our own personal life so there was like four highly melancholic, highly sensitive, empathetic people writing that song at that time in that room. So even though we were writing for the film, I'm sure all that went in the soup somewhat. What was it like being on that stage holding that trophy? And like, there's probably a billion people watching. It was so it was so crazy. So at the Golden Globes, she, they all decided that I, I would speak, you know, which was really sweet. So I like wrote something. I rehearsed it. I wanted to thank everyone, would, like be eloquent, not embarrass myself, and like the biggest thing ever on the stage. And uh, at the at the Oscars, we were just like, because me, Anthony, and Andrew, the co-writers of the song, who are good friends of mine, they're like, we're like, it's the Oscars. Like we'll just stand, we'll shut up, stand behind her, let her talk. That's all anybody wants to see. And there's nothing that we can say that's really going to be impactful after that. Yeah. So I was like, so how's that? Is that cool? None of us speak, just her. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, Mark. Like, it's probably secretly going, like, you always ruin our fun. But yeah, okay. <laughs> so then we get up on the stage and she gives a speech and it's so beautiful and so genuine and she's like from the heart. And then she kind of like looks at me a bit panicked and like, like, you want to say something? I'm like, I've just told everybody we're not going to speak. And mm-hmm. like, here I am. And I haven't thought of anything to say. And I'm going to sound like an idiot. And, and they're going to hate me because I'm talking. And I said that nobody was talking. And I just was like, uh, well, I guess you can't really thank yourself and sing you're the most right. important person in this, like on this stage for this award. Like we thank you, and that was kind of it. And I was like, I was like one of those days, I was like, I was like, thank you, brain, for coming up with something like kind of okay in the in a like in a you know in a clutch moment. But um, yeah, and it was it was it was just so crazy. I mean, it was like really like the the hour immediately after of like walking around with her her sneaking a cigarette outside in this giant ball gown we're all clutching these trophies like like giddily laughing um was, was felt just like a height like a like a amazing time like with your friends at the prom or something like it was just so carefree that was like one of the more like happy times that i like remember of like anything to do with like professional life for sure where's the oscar the Oscar is in my house in LA, um, and uh, it's it's like weird. It's like it's not like super on display, but I do catch it out of the corner of my eye when like watching TV, and it's kind of like to the left. And I'm sometimes I just look at it and be like, obviously because my own feelings of 
whatever my self-esteem issues like sometimes i'm just like did it feels like someone broke into my house and left you there like how did you even get into this place you know <laughs> but um jimmy kimmel who i you know is, is all it's been so cool and had us on the show to play music i'm not i've never hung out with him but like outside of um being on the show but he sent me a pair of like rubber novelty underwear that like fit over the oscar like and it's like to cover up it's like <laughs> private i mean it's a ken doll it doesn't really have private right. parts but it's like you know it's kind of cute it just came in a box that just said for oscar <laughs> um which is cool so you're doing it again with nothing breaks like a heart which is another big monster hit miley cyrus mm. tell me about that record um so miley cyrus i had seen saying i mean of course i knew about the big pop hits and the stuff she did with mike will but i never knew about like a super country roots and i would watch her sing 50 ways to leave your lover on the snl 40th and i was like oh my god like because all the nashville twang everything came out and i kind of like i you know call my manager like do you know my size manager can you i just saw her sing on this thing and i'm obsessed like can you just see if she'd ever want to make music or she wants to get in and fuck around for a couple days so he's like yeah here's her number so i text her I don't really hear anything back. I wait like a couple of days. I'm like, hey, by the way, da da da, and I think she sends me back like a, a like an emoji, like like she definitely doesn't know who I am or like whatever uh -oh. the fuck is going on. And so I kind of just mildly continued this thing for three or four years of just like I would just wait or you know like nothing was really happening. And then I was working on this album, this sort of breakup record, like I said, and and. Uh, we were sitting around and Ilse Juba, this amazing songwriter I was working with, was like, you know, I want to write this song, like all these things break, like records break, things break, but like nothing breaks like a heart. And it just sounded so good, too good to be true. I was like, there's never been a song called that before, so whatever. So should we write this little chorus and I'm just like, you know what, like it would be so perfect for Miley. I mean, she never ever writes me back, but whatever, I'll send off like one last Hail Mary. And I texted it to her, and she was like, "Write, write back, like, yeah, I, I, it's cool. Like, are you around Tuesday? I could come to where we were recording in in, in uh, L.A. And I couldn't believe it. It was just such a funny thing after four years. Of, and then she came in. It was the first time we really met, hung out for, like, three hours. Then she just, like, turned on a dime and, like, went and sang. And it did this glorious, like, aching vocal, and it, it felt good. So then she wrote the rest of the verses that night with Ilse. And yeah, that's just like one of those things, like again, like there's an instinct about something happening, you don't kind of know why, but you're just like, I'm just gonna chase it because it feels right. And then sometimes it pays off and not all the time, but this was like one of those things. And I, and it's really good that we didn't make a song two years ago or three years ago when I was initially chasing her because I hadn't had the life experience or maybe the emotional mm -hmm. maturity to want to make a song like nothing breaks like a heart i probably probably would have made something like more fun or like you know maybe a little more nine to five than jolene or something but like oh uh, yeah it's just like wherever it happens however it happens is most likely i've discovered how it's supposed to i mean you said you know like intellectually why shallow works why does nothing break like a heart work I think it's just, it's a sentiment. It's like a sentiment. Her voice is a media. Um, I I don't know. It's like, it's, you know, it's still a little bit of my DJ sensibility. There's still like that kind of four on the floor kick drum going through. And I don't know. I mean, it's odd because like the, America is this is the only country where the song wasn't a hit. I mean, it's sold well and stuff, but like in the era of 
Spotify playlists and like, you know, rap caviar and dance tracks and stuff like it's a bit of an outlier. It doesn't fit, obviously, in any of those things. So, um, so yeah, it's it's weird, like, because everywhere else in the world, um, it was either number one radio hit or number one single or whatever, but it feels like inauthentic to be like talk about it like it was a huge hit because I guess in America where we both live, it, it kind of wasn't. But I feel like music has changed so much now that even the, the metrics of how we measure, of course, you can have Old Town Road, which is by all accounts mm. measures a monster hit across the board. Yeah. And then you have songs that are like, culturally important or cultural yeah. hits or streaming hits and it's like how you can't like there's no one metric anymore but i think that that song works just because it's just honest and it kind of cuts through and anything that i've ever worked on in the past that does stand out or the ones that really uh make an impact don't sound like anything else on the radio at the time like whether it's uptown funk or locked out of heaven rehab any of those songs so like that you're taking more of a gamble on those songs but if they connect people really remember them because they just they don't they don't kind of blend into anything else you kind of mentioned like you know you, you still dj uh that was primarily what you're doing before you move into being a producer how did your your what you know from djing uh shape you as a producer it's it's a lot of things because you're just around you're constantly breathing in music which for the most part and i mean you also have to be careful like when i was djing five to six weeks like in five to six nights a week in my 20s in the in in new york of course it's like you're playing like an hour's worth of neptune's music every night it's hard not to go to the studio the next day and be slightly influenced but by most tokens it's like if you were going to be a classical composer you do go to school and university and study all the great uh classical composers from throughout history DJs make good producers because you're basically getting an on-the-job education, modern musicology. Like we're all record nerds, beat diggers, and all those things. Is like how a lawyer would study legal precedent in school, so you know what to draw when you're getting this thing. Like, is it also like theater in that, like, the moment you do something, you see the reaction, like that worked. Yeah, but it's it's you're not usually doing that with your own music, so it's like it's not quite as cut and dry because you're playing other people's music and then when you go in to the studio to make your own music you 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 definitely have a good sense of what makes people move and you think of like dr dre chad from the neptunes like you know there's like uh there's so many i'm just blanking right now djs have gone on to be like really good producers because you do have just a sense of what makes people move and that kind of thing what does eating healthy mean to you Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, 
T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. What, what, who are the great producers that you look up to? Um, well, obviously, Quincy, George Martin, um, Premier, Dereza, Q-Tip, Rick Rubin. Um, there's a guy who did, like, Maurice White, like, basically mm. doing all the Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff. Like, um, there's a lot. Nile, Nile Rogers. Oh, of course, Nile. Like, that's, yeah, the Nile. I have a lot of theories about Nile because I, I like Nile a lot. And my, our parents, he, he was close to my parents growing up, so he yep. was, like, around. And other than just having, like, the most mountainous respect for him as a producer, I always feel like because he had a run maybe unlike anybody else's. Like, if think from Sheik to Sister Sledge to Diana Ross to Madonna to the Thompson Twins to Let's even dance. Carly Simon Y to Let's Dance thrown in there. Like, he, nobody might have ever had like a six or seven year run like he did, but because it was the 80s, Duran Duran, The Reflex, so that's like another one. Because it was the 80s and considered a little bit of a vapid moment in mm. pop because of hairspray and, you know, all the serious music journals and plaid shirts now, whatever they were wearing back then, were just like, this isn't a real era of music. Nile doesn't get maybe sometimes mentioned on the same Quincy level. Well, it's also a disrespect of disco. It's a little disrespect of disco. I think it's because he was such a masterful musician as well. People might forget sometimes because mm-hmm. he really had an axe. Like, mm-hmm. um, but I think that his production, his arrangements, and the and the thing is just uh, is just like he's really up there in the top one percentile. What'd you learn working with Paul McCartney? Um, Paul McCartney. Um, I guess he said one thing that I really like. I learned a lot, but I remember one thing he really said we were recording. He gives everybody like a two-day grace period to get over the fact that you're working with fucking Paul McCartney because he knows everybody's like freaked out and then you're like, and then you got to like... And the other scary thing about working with Paul McCartney is you're not just competing, not even competing, but like against the track record history of music that he's made, music he's produced for himself all the other fucking producers that he's worked with are in the room too. So that's Jeff Lynne, George Martin, Elvis Costello, Nigel Godrich. So it's like, all of it's fucking terrifying. So like the first day, you know, like I was in the studio, I might as well, everything would fucking be made of kryptonite. Like I just can't like get anything to work. And then I started, started to hit a groove and he liked some of the stuff I was doing. And then he, we were recording an acoustic guitar. When you, you know, anyone who goes to engineering school has ever been around a studio you can put a mic in front of a nice acoustic guitar and it's it's going to sound nice, but it will sound fairly characterless and like any other song. It'll sound like any walking to a coffee house and anything. And he said, to, I was like, what do you think? He goes, it sounds like an acoustic guitar. I want it to sound like a record. Like he meant like make this iconic, make this feel like you just put the needle down on side A track one just started and this sound of this guitar, whether it sounds like 
the Beatles or the Smiths or any other kind of like iconic Tracy Chapman, the minute you hear that tone, you know what it is. He was like, that's what I want. And I love that idea of like, okay, cool. Yeah, it sounds like drums, like make it sound like a record. So that's kind of like, and just like, I mean, I always pick up from all these people little tidbits or melodic. I don't know. Like it's, you're just like, you just, you just want to always absorb around everybody. Well, let's talk about some of your, musical principles what you would teach to somebody else who was like mark i want to be a producer when i grow up like what should i think about like what would you talk to them about the main thing is like what we kind of talked about of just finding your own sonic identity or something that you do because when you do start off you are emulating your heroes and that's why you want to do it and you're probably wearing your influences on your sleeve a little or maybe you're like copying the sound of something because it's on the radio and you're like, I want to get paid. Like, this is my quickest way to success. And the main thing is just to like, the the people that really make the mark and like really like stand out and leave an impression on like the, like all of it are the people that like found their own weird sound, whether it was Timbaland by accident slowing the drums down from 120 beats and PM to 60 one day and like discovering his skitter fucking drum sound and all these things like, you just have to find that thing that's like really your own, you know? And then I think the other thing is, for me, it's always been finding those amazing artists, those sparring partners that like just bring the best out of you and that you challenge each other and they inspire you to make better shit. And you have this probably like a bit of shared sensibilities as well, but that's not even as important. Um, I feel like those are the things that are really important. You like that sense of pressure, like this artist is serious and important and i gotta rise up and like honor them yeah there's there's that for me i also really love working with artists on like their first record or second record because maybe less so maybe it's just an insecurity of like feeling like the pressure to make a hit with like an artist that's already like a superstar but there's something a little more pure and like when you're working with somebody on their first record you can kind of try out a whole bunch of shit and mm. You know, the reason that we were able to be so experimental with Back to Black when we were working on it was because, like, there was no giant fourth quarter sales projection expectation for an Amy Winehouse record. Like, they left us alone to do our shit. I don't know if that would have been necessarily the case with another artist. And then also the, uh, I had a point, and then it just went poof. <laughs> I was like, I was, I was somewhere for sure. But... Yeah, oh yeah, and the other thing is when you're working with someone on their first record or their second record, like, their enthusiasm for, like, this being so new is, like, fully contagious and, like, almost like a fountain of youth. You know, they say, like, um, areas, when they do those studies of, like, the most happy areas in the world, like, a lot of them are, like, places like... Uh, like Aarhus and these towns where there's like giant university populations because this constant regeneration of young people in there mm. and their loves and their passion is is what weirdly keeps this entire place like running and constantly youthful and like I do feel like I get to probably have that quite a bit because I keep getting to new people embark on somebody's first album and that contagion and that excitement and the what they're doing becomes well, now you're all contagious. excited about yeba this new singer from arkansas i mean like you could work with anybody and you're choosing to get in deep with somebody we've never heard of why yeah. is that um because i guess if i just hear somebody and i'm damn this is like one of the best fucking voices i've heard and i think it's just like 
I've never been excited as much by, and maybe because I like grew up in a comfortable background or whatever it is, like I didn't, I well there wasn't this sense like, like yeah, I got to support myself, but like I'm going to do something because I love it and not because I necessarily, I need to make a billion dollars or whatever it is. So I think Gabba is just like a no-brainer to me because it's like this is the most exciting artist in my current orbit. Like I'm not going to, I'm going to, do this instead of like trying to seek out somebody who's would you rather find somebody new than work with an established star it's there's something that seems a little more exciting to me about it and maybe because that's how i first came in the game so that's like familiar to me um but i i also have loved working i guess obviously gaga was already a giant established star so is miley yeah um so i do like I do like both. I just like working with good people who are kind of down to just take a chance on some stuff and that's it. Like anyone who's... And I think that's kind of most artists anyway. Does the industry kind of fuck with the process and make it harder to do what you want to do? Um, they ca- The industry doesn't really have the same power and constraints and things on the artists anymore really because it's so because of social media because of streaming artists can go so direct like even before chance was like the first important artist to not even have like a major deal that being one thing but even with these major artists like i think of ariana grande like she gets in a fight twitter beef with her ex she responds by this last line saying thank you next the next day the song's out it's the biggest song ever two weeks later there's a video and there's like this sense that you're living her life in real time with her so if you're like a super arianator or whatever it is that's like so exciting and there's no label there's no a and r man who can like really control that and tell you what to do and i think that there's some great a and r people that i know that are still there that i love them that have good taste and and uh like earn their jobs but it's 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 becoming a more, it's definitely a shakier place because it's being proven more and more. It's like, okay, we don't need some of these old paradigms quite as much. Look, at tick, TikTok is what made like Old Town Road, like one of the biggest songs in the history of music. Like that's just a crazy, like he just, there was no A&R there. There was just like, you know, a Nine Inch Nails guitar sample and like a, like a very well-produced but simple beat and an incredibly memorable hook and zeitgeist moment. What's the difference between a good producer and a great producer? Uh, Ears and luck, I think. I mean, because, you know, there was like, it it is partly down to your collaborators and who you meet with, you know, that any of the instrumentals on Back to Black with a lesser singer or a less interesting person could have sounded a little trite or cliche or, you know, like... So I think that the people that I've come across, I I'm used to be really bad at like acknowledging any kind of like credit and I deflect everything to the ninth degree. And now I'm just like, that's also annoying because then that's like, you're being overly humble. And it's like, and it's not, it's, it's not fully, it's just not acknowledging reality. So I understand the fact that I met Amy and the people that I met and how I met Gaga were little strokes of luck that I had and then what I did when I got in the room with those people. But you do still have to have that luck to meet like really, really, truly special artists. And then I guess it's just the it's the ears and knowing when to get out of the way and throwing in some good ideas sometimes and having some arrangements and just being 
what's the Quincy quote too? Something like you've always got to leave a lot of space to let God in the room, like whatever mm. your God is, whatever your spiritual power, whatever that thing of acknowledging there's something like just it's a little alchemy or magic that sometimes happens in the room that you have to be like sensitive to and always just willing, to, like ready to get out of the way quick. I mean, that's for every artist in every genre. How do you do that and like leave enough space for God to come in the room? I think you just... It's just like having a bit of a second nature thing of just knowing when to like follow an instinct, when to like mm. backtrack, when to go like, what was that thing you did before? Or just like, just, or just being like, you know, this isn't working. Let's try something different. Hey, what do you think of these chords? And then you just like, you go. And so it's, it's kind of a little bit of just being like intuitive and emotionally intuitive and being empathetic and understanding human behavior. And it's like all these things like producers, like, it's such a vague term because you have all these amazing producers throughout time that all have these different toolkits. But like the thing about always being ready to be coach, brother, cheerleader, therapist, shoulder to cry on, bouncing board, editor, like those are all these things that you just kind of like that you have to use it kind of and know when to draw on at any time. Yeah, no, that's an interesting list that I always thought like the producer has to be like all these different things and not just making the music and right. different records are going to ask for different things sometimes you can be more aggressive and assert yourself and take over the session sometimes you have to let the other person race ahead and do their thing and yeah it's um it's definitely an underdefined job or at least a you know a, a, a broad array of things come into it yes definitely so what's your superpower um I don't know if I had to say like what's the one thing that like has has served me probably the most in like my career as a producer like one thing I think is just being sensitive to like what's going on in the room because yes like I think that I've got some nice chords, so I'm not fucking Prince or Stevie Wonder. And, like, I understand arrangement. I know when to, like, what a good beat is and what the beat might be appropriate for the song. But I think, like, the idea of just being sensitive and letting everybody feel in the room, to really get something great out of somebody, like, you need to make them feel so vulnerable. I mean, so so safe to be vulnerable in the studio that they can, like, let down their guard and, like, nothing bad is going to happen to them. And these could be people, like who have paparazzi literally right outside the door or like in their own daily life, there's like no sense of like any kind of privacy or whatever. But in that studio, I can make sure that these four walls, you feel like nothing you can say can ever come back to haunt you or like you can be as honest as possible and it'll be great. And that's when you kind of get really special shit out of people. So like, I think just that ability to like let people feel safe and just be sensitive to what they might be going through is like probably the thing that's served me the most.
Thanks to Mark for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing person, because the man can't shut us down. <laughs> <laughs>